from Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. Love is blind. Love can make us do extreme things. As the saying goes, love is blind, and a person who is in love, including unrequited love, might find it difficult to judge the consequences of their actions correctly. Even when it comes to the worst crime imaginable, murder. This episode includes some references to suicidal ideation that some listeners could find upsetting. This story takes place on the Danish island of Bornholm. It's Monday the 28th of August 1995, and any expectation that the summer resort is in for another calm day is quickly shattered. At about 6.25am, the emergency services in Bornholm get a notification about a fire in a terraced house in Rune. Fortunately, the building is close to a hospital and only a few hundred meters from a police station. Emergency services are quick to arrive at the scene. The fire was noticed by two doctors who were out jogging that morning. As the two women are passing the house on the north side, they notice smoke coming from some of the ventilation grills in the gable of the building. They call the police and the fire brigade. Then they run around the house, trying to get into the building from the western side, but find it impossible. A high wall connected to the building blocks the way to the garden. The women try to climb the wall, but without success. One of them thinks she hears voices on the other side of the wall, as if someone is screaming or shouting. She can't say whether it's one person or more, but she's certain it isn't a man. The women run back to the front of the house, wanting to try to get inside through the front door. It's closed, so they smash the window and manage to get inside. In the hall, they're greeted by hot air and acrid smoke that stops them from going further. They run around the house again and go into the garden. There, under some bamboo, they find a seven-year-old boy with serious burns. He's conscious and answers questions, but his eyes seem empty, and there are embers still sizzling on his clothes. The women take the boy to a neighbor's house and wet him with water. They also ask if there's anyone else in the burning house. The boy says there is, his mother, younger brother, and the woman who started the fire. He repeats this a few times. When the rescue services arrive, the boy is taken to the emergency room. After a short conversation with him, the police learn that he was lucky to have escaped the burning house. Shortly afterwards, a rescue helicopter transports the boy to a hospital near Copenhagen, where he stays in the Burns Treatment Center. Before the forensic technicians and firefighters arrive at the scene, the entire house catches fire and one-meter-high flames are bursting through the windows. Soon after the firefighters start extinguishing the fire, they find a corpse in one of the children's rooms, the body of a four-year-old boy. A few minutes later, the firefighters find another victim. In the living room is the charred body of a woman. They assume it's the boy's mother. The forensic technicians leave both bodies in place and ask the firefighters to be careful while putting out the rest of the fire so they don't destroy any evidence. At about 11 a.m., experts from the Forensic Medicine Institute in Copenhagen arrive at the scene. Police officers from the Bornholm district soon begin visiting nearby houses. 
they quickly determined that the family who lived in the burnt-down house consisted of two adults and two children, a doctor and his wife, who's a nurse, both approximately 40 years old, and their sons, aged seven and four. One of the neighbors informs the police that on Saturday morning, the 26th of August 1995, the father went to Copenhagen to participate in a doctor's tennis tournament. He was supposed to return to Bornholm on Monday evening. The police tried to contact him through his relatives in Copenhagen. His relatives confirmed that a few friends from Bornholm have already told him about the fire and that he's already made his way to the hospital where his son is. The police call him and ask him a few questions. During the phone conversation, the man suggests the fire might have been the result of a crime. He'd had an affair with a doctor named Elizabeth, and she might have had something to do with it. But, he adds, that he ended that relationship about a month or a month and a half ago. But Elizabeth could have taken the evening plane to Bornholm and then returned to Copenhagen on the first morning flight. She would have had the time to do all of that before work. The man also describes her to the police in detail. The officers decide to pay her a visit and immediately take her to the police station to question her. But we'll return to that later. Over the next few days, the experts tried to determine what might have caused the fire at the crime scene. They secure various samples, which are then examined in a laboratory to check if any flammable liquids or other substances were used. The results lead the experts to determine two spots where the fire started, one in the living room and one in the bedroom. A possible third spot was also located in the hallway leading to the children's rooms. In the report summing up the causes of the fire, they write, because there was no natural fire sources near the indicated spots, one should assume it was arson. The workers of the Danish Fire Protection Institute also examine the site of the fire. They come to the same conclusion. There were no signs that the wiring might have caused the fire. Also of note is that the fire caused such extensive damage that it's impossible to tell whether someone had tried to break into the house before it started. On the same day, the 28th of August 1995, the police contact the airline and cafeteria at the airport in Rönne, on Bornholm. Since the police have been given Elizabeth's description, they can ask the airport staff if they recognize her. The airline workers admit that on the 28th of August, between 7.30am and 8am, they saw a woman at the airport and she seemed confused. She introduces herself as Helga and has a ticket for the flight at 7.05am. As she couldn't find that ticket, she asked for a free substitute ticket. But the airport personnel refused and she had to buy a new ticket to Copenhagen. Helga was added to the list of people waiting for the flight at 9.10am. She also bought a telephone card so she could call her employer as she was supposed to be at work at 9. The airline confirms that the woman's first ticket was bought on the 22nd of August and that she used the name Helga. The reservation was for a flight from Copenhagen to Rönne on the 27th of August at 8pm and for the return flight on the 28th of August at 7.05 a.m. The airport personnel are shown several photos, with a photo of Elizabeth among them. When asked, they confirm with absolute certainty 
that the woman who bought a new ticket on the 28th of August using the name Helga was really Elizabeth. The driver of the airport bus that runs between the airport and Rönne says that on the evening of the 27th of August, he drove a woman to an address located about 100 meters away from where the fire happened. She asked when the bus to the airport was leaving the next morning, and he replied he could pick her up at 6.35 a.m. from the same address. The woman agreed and paid in advance. Before she got off the bus, she asked how far it was to the airport. The driver answered that it was five or six kilometers. She also wanted to know how much time it would take to get there on foot, and he said that it would take approximately 45 to 60 minutes. At 6.35 a.m. the next day, the woman wasn't there. The bus driver is also shown several photos and immediately points to the one picturing Elizabeth. He's certain it's the same woman he gave a lift to on the bus. Finding Elizabeth or Helga doesn't take the police long, but the woman claims she didn't buy any tickets and doesn't have any ties with Bornholm. On the 28th of August, 1995, at 5.45pm, Elizabeth is arrested and informed that she's suspected of having set fire to a house on Bornholm. She's surprised, but doesn't seem shocked and only asks the police officers how they found her. She denies having anything to do with the fire and claims she only learned about it from the police. The police officers don't believe her, and try to put some pressure on her. It's enough to make her start talking. She says that since August 1994, she'd been meeting a colleague in the same line of work who lives in that house. At first, they were just friends, but in October 1994, their relationship turned into something more. They even got to the point where they started talking about living together. But during another conversation, about a month and a half ago, the man announced that he wanted to end the relationship. Elizabeth doubts that his wife, Birte, knew about the relationship. The last time she visited her family on Bornholm was during the week from the 20th to the 25th of August, when she was filling in for one of the doctors in the hospital in Rönne. They went to eat something together. On the evening of the 27th of August, Elizabeth talked to her parents and sister over the phone, but she was tired and went to sleep early, between 8pm and 8.30pm. She had to get up often that night because of stomach problems. The next morning, on the 28th of August, she was supposed to start her shift at 7.45am, but because she wasn't feeling well, at 8am she called the hospital and said she couldn't come to work before 10am. She didn't get better during her shift, so at about 1.30pm she found a replacement and left the hospital. On the way home, she stopped by a supermarket to do the shopping and returned home at about 3 p.m. That's what Elizabeth tells the police during questioning. Afterwards, at about 9.10 p.m., she's taken into custody. About an hour later, Elizabeth says she'd like to talk to the police again because she has more information for them. This time, She admits she was on Bornholm when the fire started and even saw the burning building from afar. Elizabeth is taken to the police station where she says that Berta wrote a letter to her at the end of July. Berta wrote that for the past two years she'd been having an affair with another man 
and that she'd like to talk to Elizabeth about it. Elizabeth replied and promised she wouldn't tell her husband anything. She also wrote that she was going to visit the island between the 20th and 25th of August and they would be able to talk, but they never met. So instead, they agreed that Elizabeth would fly over on the 27th of August in the evening when Berta's husband would be in Copenhagen. That's why Elizabeth flew over from Copenhagen on the 27th of August at 8pm. When she bought the ticket, she did so as Helga because Berta didn't want her husband to learn about their meeting. She booked a return ticket for 7.05am the next morning. Elizabeth arrived to see Berta at her house between 9.15pm and 9.30pm. Berta was home with her two sons. Elizabeth confesses that she decided to tell the other woman about her relationship with her husband. She briefly describes what happened that evening and says that she saw both boys leaving their rooms many times and coming to the living room. Elizabeth decided to say goodbye late in the evening. That was when she noticed Berta was holding a piece of paper in her hand and must have brushed it against some burning candles by accident. The paper caught fire but the small flames were quickly extinguished. Before leaving, Elizabeth went to the bathroom. That's where she met the older boy, who said that something smelled strange in his room. They went to his room together, but Elizabeth didn't smell anything suspicious there, and she returned to the living room. She said goodbye to the older boy and his mother and left the house through the terrace door. She went through the garden and got to the street. When Elizabeth was leaving, she saw a strange light in the bedroom window, but didn't think anything of it. She claims that she left the house, crossed the garden, and ended up at a meadow behind the house. When she was walking across the meadow, she heard a thud and a crack like breaking glass. She turned towards the house and saw clouds of smoke rising up, but didn't see any flames. She also heard a woman screaming, Fire! Fire! Elizabeth continues her story, adding, I didn't even think they might not be able to escape. They were still awake when I left. She went to the airport on foot, only stopping for a while at the Fretensborg Hotel to use the toilet. Elizabeth got to the airport at about 7.45am, missing the plane that had left at 7.05am. As she'd already mentioned, she couldn't find the ticket and had to buy a new one. She also bought a telephone card to call the hospital in Herlu, where she worked. Then she boarded the plane and left Bornholm at 9.10am. While Elizabeth is questioned, other policemen search her flat. Among other things, they find a sheet of A4 paper somebody had written on. It's probably a rough draft of the letter she sent to Berta, as her name is on it, along with the word adultery. It also contains a list. It reads, A list of things... Bornholm, rucksack or bag, pills, ground and dissolved in water in a syringe, gloves, rope, razor blade, a tourniquet, needle, syringe, air, a shawl, a hat, sunglasses, jeans, a big t-shirt, cash for a plane ticket, The Letter to Berta The very same day, Elizabeth is transported to Bornholm and handed over to the local police. Since they are planning to put her in jail, they need to bring her to a judge 
who would issue a warrant for her arrest. But before that, she's questioned by the police officers again. She still denies being the one who started the fire. She sticks to her earlier testimony, but adds that in the week before the fire, she saw her colleague's wife often, and the two eventually became friends. That week, they agreed that Elizabeth would fly to the island again on Sunday, and they would talk about the other woman's romance. The same week, they also agreed that Elizabeth would buy a plane ticket using the name Helga so that Berta's husband wouldn't learn about the trip she was planning. Berta didn't know Elizabeth met with her husband a few times in Copenhagen during the week before the fire. She said goodbye to him on Sunday afternoon at about 3.15pm. At about 7.30pm, she went to Copenhagen airport and boarded the plane to Renne. She took a bus from the airport and got off near the family's home. Before visiting Berta, Elizabeth went for a walk on the beach to get some air and think, as she says. Then she went to Berta's home. Both women sat and talked. Berta told Elizabeth about her romance with another man, and Elizabeth told her about her relationship with her husband. They drank coffee, ate chocolate cake, and also drank a few bottles of beer. They didn't really argue, but their conversation did get louder and louder. Neither of them were under the strong influence of alcohol or drugs. Elizabeth says that she left the house at 5.30am. She ran to the beach to have a brief swim. Then she walked on, stopping by the Fredensborg Hotel, where she used the toilet. She arrived at the airport at about 7.25am, after her plane had left. The police officers show her the list found at her place. She admits she wrote it at the end of July or the beginning of August 1995. Elizabeth confesses that she was feeling depressed because of the breakup with Berta's husband. She was even considering suicide and wanted to do so on Bornholm. The police officers ask her to explain each item on the list. Elizabeth says that she wanted to take a rucksack or a bag with her and that the ground pills were for her suicide. She wanted to mix them with food or add them to a drink. The part about dissolved in water in a syringe was necessary, she says, in case I'd have to use a venous catheter on myself, she explains. She took the syringe in the event that the pills wouldn't work as they were supposed to. But to do that, she'd also need a tourniquet. When asked why she needed gloves, Elizabeth is unable to answer. She mentions that the other items she packed into the bag were all there because she was considering different ways that she could end her own life. The next day, the 29th of August 1995, Elizabeth is brought to a judge in Runna who issues a warrant for her arrest. She keeps denying having anything to do with the fire. Despite this, she is put in jail for four weeks, two of which she is to spend in isolation. Elizabeth's last testimony concerns a visit to a hairdresser. Shortly before she was detained on Monday, she decided to have a haircut and gives the investigators the hairdressing salon's address. After talking to her legal advisor, Elizabeth decides not to share any more information. She's then transported to the Forensic Medicine Institute in Copenhagen for examination. Unprompted, she starts talking about the case. 
Elizabeth says she met the man she had an affair with a year earlier. She thinks they were a great match and was certain they were a perfect couple and meant to be together. The man told her that about 10 years earlier, his wife had an affair with a skiing instructor, but they had once again grown close. By the end of July 1995, she got a letter from his wife in which the woman confided in her. She wrote that she had started an affair with another man, which had started about two years earlier, and was thinking about moving in with him together with her children. In the letter, she also mentioned that Elizabeth was the only person she could talk to about it. In the evening, when Elizabeth visited her and told her about the relationship with her husband, she wasn't even really angry. She was instead apathetic, as if in shock. Elizabeth explains that the other woman might have taken some medicine earlier, which contradicts her previous testimony where she suggested neither of them were under the influence of any intoxicating substances. Elizabeth also claims that Berta was somewhat lethargic. She even blames herself that despite being a doctor, she couldn't have assessed the other woman's condition more accurately. Elizabeth wasn't with Berta the entire evening and supposes that at some point the other woman might have gone to the bathroom and taken sleeping pills. During her visit, Berta's son got out of bed and came into the living room. Elizabeth put him back to bed and when she came back to the living room, the blanket Berta was wrapped in was on fire and the flames were growing bigger and bigger. Elizabeth ran to get some water but wasn't able to extinguish the fire as it had already become too big. That's when she saw the older boy run up to his mother's blanket and his clothes caught on fire. The boy ran back to his room and started rolling back and forth on his bed, trying to put the fire out. Thick clouds of smoke flowed into the room, but Elizabeth managed to carry the boy out into the garden through the terrace door. He immediately went back to get his younger brother. Elizabeth ran after him and found the boy in the living room. He was caught in a gap at the terrace door and couldn't free himself. She helped him and took him into the garden again. Elizabeth can't explain why she didn't call for help and blames the shock of the extreme situation. She left the boy and ran across the fields towards the sea and doesn't remember what happened after that. The police officers are shaken by her explanations. There are many connections and details that do not match other testimonies or just seem unbelievable. Because Elizabeth's testimonies alone have no value as evidence, the investigators focus on important clues and witnesses who could provide more detailed information. The police address the public through the media and ask any witnesses who might have seen something suspicious connected to the fire to come forward. It turns out that on the day the fire started, many people noticed a suspicious person whose description matches Elizabeth's. Thanks to the witnesses' testimonies, the investigators are able to partly retrace her route back to the airport. The police officers get confirmation that she was in the Fredensborg Hotel and used the toilet there. The witnesses' statements also let the police determine that Elizabeth changed her clothes shortly before she got to the airport. The police take sniffer dogs to look for clues along the five-kilometer route between the airport and where the fire was which Elizabeth probably crossed on foot. They're hoping to find some clues, maybe even the clothes she wore at the crime scene, something that might be a direct connection. 
a team of dog handlers, divers, and law enforcement officers search the area along the whole route, but they find no clothes or other evidence that could be useful in the investigation. While the police question Elizabeth about her movements after leaving the burning house, the victim's autopsy is performed. The corpse found in the building is, as expected, the body of the boy's mother. The autopsy report reveals that signs of violence were found on the body. Blood test results show no traces of alcohol, but also no traces of cyanides in her blood. These are usually present in fire victims who inhale combustion gases. There was also no soot in her airways. This all suggests that she was dead when the fire started. An examination of her liver, blood, and stomach contents revealed the presence of a lethal dose of morphine. The autopsy report of the younger boy mentions first, second, and third-degree burns. There are no traces of violence, but there were soot particles in his airways. His blood tests reveal a level of cyanides typical for fire victims, and the cause of death was carbon monoxide poisoning. He was alive when the fire started. The older boy was transported to the Burns Treatment Center in a hospital in Copenhagen. Unfortunately, it turns out that the burns are so serious that nothing can be done for him. Even in a specialist clinic, on the 29th of September 1995, the boy dies because of his injuries. His autopsy reveals a wound on the back of his head, which indicates he was hit with a blunt tool. Aside from the burns, there are also scrapes and bruising on his left temple, forehead, and on the back of his head. During the next part of the investigation, the police officers contact the hairdresser from the salon where Elizabeth had her haircut on Monday morning. The hairdresser instantly recognizes her. While she was cutting Elizabeth's hair, she noticed that her customer's fringe was singed. When she asked what happened, Elizabeth said she'd got too close to a lighter. The police officers also talked to Elizabeth's co-workers at the hospital. One of the nurses says that around the 12th of July, 1995, she gave Elizabeth three or four morphine pills. Elizabeth had said her friend had breast cancer and suffered from very strong pain. The police try to find that friend, but are not successful. Both pieces of information, that Elizabeth got morphine from a nurse and that the autopsy revealed that there was morphine in the victim's blood, are interesting. That's why the medicine secured at the crime scene and in Elizabeth's flat has to be thoroughly analyzed. But this is more complicated than expected. The drugs are tested in 60 different chemical analysis, but the results show none of the samples contain morphine. All glasses, cups, and mugs from the site of the fire are secured and carefully examined. Those tests bring no expected results either. No traces of morphine or any other medicine are found. The victim's husband is also questioned. He says that he met Elizabeth in August 1994, and their acquaintance quickly turned into a romance. But he was never planning to leave his wife and kids. He only met with Elizabeth when he flew to Copenhagen, or when she came to Bornholm. In April or May 1995, he realized that he couldn't continue that relationship and tried to free himself from his lover in different ways. Elizabeth didn't seem to understand. She began to harass him, calling him several times a day 
whether he was at work or at home. In July, he was finally successful at breaking up with her, but they kept meeting as friends. He hoped they could still see each other as colleagues and fellow doctors. He doubts his wife knew about the relationship, but she might have had some suspicions. During the week when Elizabeth was filling in at the hospital in Renne, they met often. Their relationship was tense, leading to many minor arguments. In his opinion, Elizabeth was unstable and sometimes she overreacted. She even begged him to meet her one last time and get her pregnant, but he refused. On the 25th of August, Elizabeth tried to lure him to Copenhagen and seduce him, saying she'd booked a double cabin on the ferry. Again, he refused. It was the weekend when they were both supposed to participate in the doctor's tennis tournament in Copenhagen. He decided to fly to Copenhagen the next morning. Elizabeth picked him up at the airport, even though they hadn't agreed on that arrangement. He decided she was crossing the line. On Saturday, they both participated in the tournament, and in the evening, they went to a party together. After the party, he stayed the night at his acquaintances. On Sunday, he and Elizabeth met at about 11.30am and drove to the Castellet Citadel and to the Langelina Harbour to go for a walk. The investigators also questioned his late wife's friends and acquaintances. Everyone agrees on one thing. Berta had never been depressed. They all describe her as a happy, balanced woman they could always count on. She was family-orientated and loved her children dearly. She told one of her friends that a woman named Elizabeth was trying to steal her husband. During that conversation, Berta also said that when Elizabeth had come over for dinner at their house some time ago, and they had been saying goodbye, Elizabeth had hugged her and thanked her for a nice evening. She told her friend that that hug had sent a cold shiver down her spine. None of Berta's friends or acquaintances believes she could have had an affair. The investigators learned that Elizabeth was in at least two relationships in the past. After they ended, she pestered her ex-partners and harassed them. To solve the matter of Elizabeth's guilt, she is examined by psychiatrists. Experts conclude that her behavior shows no signs of mental disorders or any similar conditions, and that she didn't act in a fit of passion. She wasn't under the influence of alcohol or any medicine that could have affected her mental state. She's also described as a self-confident person with high self-esteem, and she is certain she always acts rationally and according to her convictions. Nothing indicates that she suffers from psychosis or borderline personality disorder. To summarize, it seems she makes contact easily, and her behavior should in general be considered normal. So, she is ruled fit to stand trial. Charges against Elizabeth are drawn up in a jury trial according to Article 237 of the Danish Penal Code. Charged with the voluntary manslaughter of the mother and her younger son on the morning of the 28th of August. She is also accused of causing the death of the older son by setting the building on fire since the boy died a few days later due to his burns. On the 25th of October, 1996, the court returns a verdict. Elizabeth is sentenced to life imprisonment. Elizabeth and her lawyer immediately appeal to the Supreme Court. On the 4th of June 1977, the Supreme Court returns a verdict. Its decision is that the High Court's verdict 
is upheld. Elizabeth is put in a prison near Copenhagen. It's a place where they put prisoners who have to be protected from possible attacks by other inmates, which is a common risk when it comes to people sentenced for crimes against children. It's also a prison where both men and women serve their sentences. While in prison, she starts a relationship with a man sentenced for child abuse. They marry in prison. The man is released from prison first and moves into Elizabeth's flat in Copenhagen, where she lives during her social reintegration period. Rumor has it that the two are still married and live together in a small town somewhere in Denmark. Apparently, Elizabeth still claims she was convicted unjustly. From Podimo, this was Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. Listen to a new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.